And let's invite Pastor Dennis up to teach this morning. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> Thank you, Royce. Thank you, team. Intensity of worship reflects preparation. And uh, it seems to me that many came prepared this morning. Praise be to God. He's worthy, isn't he? He's worthy of that preparation and that expectation. He loves to be expected on. He loves to be waited on. He loves to be praised and given honor and glory. He's so worthy of that. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being together and giving you honor and glory and praise. You are worthy of that, Lord. Lord, help us now as we worship with our minds and our hearts as we look at your word. And Lord, I pray that you would speak through me and let anything that isn't of you just uh, fall before it even touches my lips. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. We are uh, continuing our series called Exiles. We're looking at those uh, people of God that lived godly lives in an ungodly culture. And so today we're going to look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, it's a dramatic story of radical faith and allegiance to Yahweh. It is a dramatic story of uh, the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. It's a dramatic story that's filled with lessons for us, of which I'm going to draw out three this morning, and uh, the Holy Spirit may show you several more, and that would be good. Uh, so... Uh, if you can get your Bibles and uh, open up to Daniel chapter 1, I'm going to start with a bit of background. We're going to be in the book of Daniel for the next two Sundays, today and next Sunday. Today we're going to look at uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as um, uh, I've just outlined, but next week we're going to look at the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And um, I want to set the context for these two messages just by uh, giving a bit of background and introduction uh, to the uh, book of Daniel and to the characters that we're going to study this year, this, uh, this week and next week. Uh, in Daniel chapter 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. We've got a map here which just shows us a little bit about the kingdom, uh, the Babylonian Empire. The date is pretty accurately 606 or 605 B.C. We know that from several other historical records. But as you can see, uh, the kingdom has spread uh, all through, on the right side, all through Medo-Persia, up uh, into uh, uh, 
what, what is now uh, Iraq and even uh, Azerbaijan left into half of Turkey and all the way through the Holy Land, all the way through Saudi Arabia and all the way down through Egypt, a, a huge kingdom. And um, uh, it says in verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Now here, I've told us it's about 605 B.C., but who is being deported by the king of Babylon out of the Holy Land into uh, the Babylonian uh, uh, province, we've got somewhere maybe around 10,000 people, but uh, the, the three that are, the four that are mentioned in verse six, is, 6 and 7 are among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, these were likely 15 or so year old boys. Um, these were probably royal or nobility related, and probably much of their families were murdered. And they were taken into exile. Uh, we think of uh, the, the, the trauma of that. And think of it uh, of the young women who were also taken. And we read at least about one of those, Esther, uh, in another book of the Bible. Um, but we have all kinds of family disruption, families being torn apart. That is happening to believing families in Afghanistan right now. That is happening all over the world in places where, uh, that are hostile to the gospel. And these are young people. It's why that, that we put such a high priority in our youth program in preparing our students uh, because every year we send off our youth to college. It's a little bit like being exiled. Uh, it's a lot like being exiled. And so preparing them, and we will see in this story that these four young men were prepared. They had a history, they had a family lineage, they had been educated in the ways of Yahweh. I want to look at their name, their names here, uh, the, the names they had and the names they were given. It says a lot to us about the methodology that the Babylonians used in exile. Daniel, his name meant, God is my refuge. Hananiah, God has favored. Mishael, who is what God is. And Azariah, God has helped. Now we look at their Babylonian names, and we can see, by the way, hidden in their Babylonian names is reference to several Babylonian deities. But the meaning is, um, 
uh, roughly as follows. Belteshazzar is protect the king. Shadrach is friend of the king. Meshach is guest of the king. And Abednego is servant of the king. And we can see that even in renaming them, the king is trying to change their identity from what has been given to them by their family at birth. But we can see that these guys had a pretty strong pretty strong preparation for this moment, uh, for these years. So in verse 17, it says, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. The rise of King Cyrus began uh, in about 558 B.C., but the, the time where he became king over Babylon was 539 B.C. So what we have here is 45, but probably 65 more years that Daniel will serve this king. And I, I lean towards the 65 so that we have a 15-year-old who will get three years of training at age 18, will go into the king's service and will serve this king until he is in his early 80s. Separated from family, uh, separated from his homeland, uh, separated from all the things that he was used to. And so I just want you to, to grasp like how... What a situation these guys were in. And the story we're going to read today is actually uh, early on in that time. So we're, we're going to see that they're going to have to persevere over decades and decades and decades in this situation. So uh, let's now dive into chapter 3 and see the story here. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This is just outside the main city. Uh, think of something the size of the Paris Center Tower, the clock tower. That's about 90 feet high. It's a little wider than what this is, but think of that sitting uh, in a plain outside the city uh, where this gold image uh, of most commentators think the king himself in gold. Where did he get such an idea? Well, he had a dream in chapter 2. I don't have time to go into the dream, but basically he had a dream of a statue that had multiple, made out of multiple materials. And he said to his astrologers and his enchanters, he said, you need to tell me what my dream was and what it means. And of course, Everybody complained, and his, all his astrologers complained, that's ridiculous. No king has ever made such a demand. Anyway, da Daniel, they're all going to get killed by the king. And Daniel says, please give us some time. He fasts. He prays to the God of heaven. The God of heaven gives him the dream and the interpretation. He comes back to the king. 
He gives him the dream. He gives him what it means. And we read uh, in verse 45 of chapter 2, the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. There's going to be four kingdoms. His is going to be the best and there's going to be some other kingdoms coming after him. And so he probably got the idea for this statue from the statue in his dream. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, it says in verse 46, fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So, Daniel is not in this story, chapter 3. He's in the royal court. The boys are appointed administrators over the province of Babylon, which is where the king uh, has parked this image 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. So, in verse 2 of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Think State of the Union, right? All houses of government, all layers of government, everybody in their different jobs from all over the place being brought in uh, to be summoned by the king. So, of course, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, that's a stringed instrument, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. This could be an ore smelting furnace, or it could be a brick kiln furnace. We don't know. It doesn't say. But therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So what you have here is you have the mixing of government and religion. You have the king uh, demanding worship of himself, of this image he's put up. So he's bringing them all together, and it's his, it's his way of securing the power of his kingdom. If I can have the government people and I can have the religious people, I can have everybody bowing to this statue and image that I've set up, then I'm going to have control in greater measure over my kingdom. This is a behavior which would continue all the way through the next four kingdoms. And of course, certainly as we've studied before in the Roman Empire, the, uh, the, the uh, Caesar seeking worship. So at this time in verse 8, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Now something really interesting about that verse the astrologers are some of those uh, 
men uh, and, and servants that were in the king's court. They were uh, those that probably that type of magi that came to worship Jesus. Uh, we've got enchanters, magicians. So this category is a little bit uh, unclear, but it comes, they come forward. And now remember, they've just had their lives saved by Daniel getting from God the dream that the king insisted on getting. So all these astrologers, the king was going to kill them all. And Daniel gets the dream, Daniel reveals the dream, and Daniel reveals the meaning of the dream, and these guys get to live. So this, this is interesting in that he's, he's coming forward to denounce the Jews. And that's where we find out, the, for the first time, that these guys have a reputation. These guys have only been around for a couple of years. They've been in training for three, and then they've been uh, working very brief time for the king. And so they are known. And these, these astrologers say to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. I think it takes a worshiper to list all these instruments like 18 times in the first three chapters. Do you think Daniel is a worshiper? He's got tremendous detail on the worship. Anyway, and that what, whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who you have set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And so you can imagine the plain of Dura, the Paris Center clock tower in gold, and everybody on their face except for three dudes. And may maybe there's some other Jews, we don't know, but at least there's these three who are not going to worship the image. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar, and by the way, furious with rage, whenever an idol gets toppled over in your heart, uh, you can often experience anger and rage. So if you've been struggling with anger, the very first question you should be asking yourself is, why am I upset? And you will, if you follow that train of questioning, you will probably find something has been toppled over. Maybe uh, disobedient kids have toppled over your idol of being an awesome parent. Or maybe a uh, careless spouse will topple over the image of you've got a great marriage. Or maybe somebody will come to you in a point of pride and challenge you on that. Whatever it is, anger is that idol. And of course, this is what Nebuchadnezzar is really going for here. He's going for this worship. So he's furious with rage. He summons them, and they were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar says to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound, let me give you another chance. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, 
If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So it's interesting because Nebuchadnezzar has already seen in chapter 2 how awesome this God is. But he's still he's still not he's on the journey. He's still not fully fully bought into the strength and the power and the majesty of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so he's questioning how can they be saved? What God is going to save you from my hand? So here is a man walking in a lot of pride and a lot of, uh, and a lot of uh, rage because that pride's being challenged. And so the first thing I, I just want to summarize these first 15 verses by saying that, that what I take from this is that these, these three guys have let nothing dilute their worship and their affection for the God of Israel. Nothing has diluted their worship and their affection from God, for God. And, and, and we see this in... Obviously, the, the, the response that they're, we're going to cover in a minute, but they are standing there and they're perfectly comfortable not acceding to this request. This is a pretty significant threat. This is cancel culture at its finest. This is coercion at its finest. This is uh, all of the media and all of the fear that a, a king can heap on his people to coerce them to obey what he wants. And these three have remained 100% unaffected by that. Those are some of the external things that, that could demand that we let go of our worship and our affections of our king. But there's also internal things. So we know that these Jews are praying the Shema three times a day. From Deuteronomy 6. We know they're in the Word of God, whether they have it memorized or whether they're encouraging each other in the Word. We know that they have identity, that they, they are radically allegiant to Yahweh. And they, they know that from their names, from their birth, from their upbringing, from their training in the Scriptures, from all of that. And, and they are cultivating this this internal place of worship that makes them fearless in the face of this uh, cultural onslaught. There's also another aspect, which is their diet. In chapter 1, they're given all this food, the king's food, at his table. They're given wine and all. We don't know what that is, but it's probably meat sacrificed to idols. It's probably uh, large amounts of pork. It probably uh, comes with all kinds of entertainment and music. So that whole, that whole program, Daniel says, I don't want to defile myself with the royal food. So he asked the chief official, hey, can we get off of this food? And the chief official had been brought favorably disposed towards Daniel because of God. But he said, I'm sorry, man, I can't do this because if you guys go south, the king's going to have my head. So then he goes to the officials 
direct subordinate and says, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't you test us with vegetables and water for 10 days? And then after that, we'll see how it looks. And if it looks okay, then you won't be endangering your boss. So very tactful. And they, at the end of the 10 days, it says in verse 15 of chapter 1, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. You may have heard this referred to as the Daniel diet. It, 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 it contains kind of a truth, which is uh, fasting and simpler methods of eating can have great spiritual benefit. And especially if we think about uh, this laser-like focus on God, if we are constantly taking up from the culture, entertainment from the culture, uh, if we're eating excessively, if we're drinking excessively, we're dulling our spiritual senses. We're bringing ourselves into a place of probably uh, lethargy, tiredness, not sharp thinking, whatever it might be. Think about these guys and their the stand they've taken. So I see a picture of these young teenagers seriously focused on Jesus, seriously focused on the things of Jesus, things of God, seriously focused on uh, the Word, their worship, and they are therefore strong internally and this stuff from the culture is not penetrating them. And I think that that points to us ways that we can think about strengthening our disciplines to make us more focused on the Lord more often, more minutes of every day, uh, filled with the Spirit more often, in the Word more often, and spiritually strengthened. That's the challenge that I think this text is giving us here in this first 15 verses with the appropriate background. So that's, that's point one. Do not let anything, anything dull or distract or diminish your worship and your affections for Jesus, for the Father, for the Holy Spirit. So let's continue now because the boys take their stand. In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I love that they just stake their entire lives on Yahweh. They recognize that it's possible he might not deliver them from this particular challenge. And in that, they, they, they follow in the lineage of Job, who in Job chapter 13, verse 15 said, Even though he slay me, I will place my hope in him. Even if this thing that I'm in the middle of, uh, leads, this trial I'm in the middle of, leads to death, still my hope is in him because I will see my Redeemer. Job knew that he would see his Redeemer, uh, believe the understanding of the life after was clear enough in these guys' minds. We can deal with anything you want to throw at us. And there's something about everything even going south 
they're still absolutely committed to their course of action. And then, of course, in verse 19, it does go south. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His attitude towards them changed. I think it had already changed to some degree. Now it goes into hyperdrive. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And I love how the enemy always overplay. We can trust him to overplay his hand, and even the instruments of execution are killed uh, by this crazy, urgent, furious rage that Nebuchadnezzar finds himself in. And so they take their stand, and they, they, have, they, have, they knew it was coming, and they go with incredible courage, like, okay, even if it goes south, we're in. We're in with our God. And I, I, I can't think of a better picture of that than Jesus on the cross. Jesus knowing in the Garden of Gethsemane what is going to happen to him goes to the cross. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, but Jesus had to have faith. He had to have faith that when he let his life go, the Father and the Spirit would raise him from the dead. And you can bet the enemy was full on that moment. Full on. And he went to the cross, and of course, uh, the rest is history. He was raised from the dead. The whole situation looks absolutely bleak, but he has this fierce and unwavering trust in his Father. Even at the point of the cross where the Father had withdrawn his presence from him, Jesus is still 100%, 100% faithful and believing what's going to happen. And that that is the, the lesson for us, is that we can stake our lives on Jesus no matter, what, no matter what you are facing today, no matter what kind of a challenge you are facing. And even if it goes south and does not work out the way you pray, you know, having prayed for two sisters to be healed of cancer and having both of them die is extremely challenging but we knew that no matter what happened, they would be saved. And they were, and they are. And so, the, this now is the turning point of the story. In, in verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet in amazement and asks his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Uh, yep, certainly, your majesty. They, they were indeed. Well, he said, look. I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. If you're reading in your King James, uh, or your new King James, it says, and the fourth one looks like the son of God. And this is most certainly Jesus in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
wow, I met Jesus in China. Can you imagine meeting him in a furnace for the first time and seeing and feeling his power, his protection, his absolute dominant control over the whole situation? And what, what happens is just the joy just, just comes flying out because he's there. You know, he was there with Moses in the burning bush. He likes fire. He was there in the pillar of fire, defeated and blinded the Egyptians so they couldn't see the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea. He's the one who sent fire onto the altar when Solomon dedicated the temple. He is the one in the furnace with these guys. Imagine that. Just imagine that for a second. And then also, he's going to be bringing fire at the end. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says he's going to burn the whole world up. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth created, and it's going to be destroyed by fire. And that's why there's going to be some that are in the lake of fire without him, and some are going to be in the fire with him. I don't know how it's going to work, but we're going to have a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experience when he burns everything up and recreates the earth. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. But it's even better than that, guys. He's with us right here, right now. He's with us right here, right now. He's walking around this room. He's touching hearts. Jesus, I hope I'm handling this the way you would like it handled. But he's with us. And trusting God when you're under fire always produces really good fruit. It produces fruit in you because it grows your faith and it produces fruit in others. Look at the fruit of Jesus going to the fiery death of the cross. That wasn't fire exactly, but that was really intense. And look at the fruit that's come from that. Those here, those listening online, you're part now of a family because of the fact that Jesus stood up when it was time and trusted his Father. And the same goes for us. If we see that, we'll see transformation in ourselves and we'll also see transformation in others. Look at what happened when Stephen was stoned. Next thing that happens, Saul is saved. And we have the Apostle Paul. Every time somebody stands up, it produces fruit. And so uh, the story continues. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Oh, now he's the Most High God. Nebuchadnezzar just gets some unbelievable grace here. I mean, he, he gets lots of chances. Come out, come here. What, what blows me away is that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to meet the son of the God. He wants the three guys to come out. I wonder what he was thinking, like... I would want to, 
I mean, I know what Peter would do. Peter would say, hey, call me so I can come in there. Right? He'd want to, he'd want to be there. So they come out. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Mariel's dog, Nacho, got too close to the barbecue the other day, and he had one of his whiskers singed, and it was just curled up like, about like that. And he was running for cover under the table, uh, hiding from the barbecue. So they're looking at not a hair singed, their robes were not scorched. There was no smell of fire on them. You know, you go to a... Michael had a man fire the other day, a couple months ago, and we sat around the fire, and you stink of fire, just standing around the fire. Don't even smell fire on them. Total protection. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. The pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus, he's known as the angel of the Lord. If you look in your Bible and look at all the times the angel of the Lord, you'll see that's Jesus, pre-incarnate, in the burning bush, in the pillar of fire, all the places I've been talking about. They rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Could you imagine the president saying something like that? <laughs> Can you imagine? Here's the king, right? Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Incredible story, but it's true today. And I just want to re remind us of these three things. You know, don't let anything dilute your worship and your affection of our awesome God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Secondly, you can stake your life on Jesus no matter where you are, no matter what you're facing. If you are afraid, if you are experiencing anxiety, Cast your cares on Jesus because he cares for you. And thirdly, trusting God when we're under fire always produces good fruit. And we have to trust God for that because there are going to be times where it looks really bad. And everybody around us will say it looks really bad. And Bill Bright, when he was dying of pulmonary fibrosis, told his close advisors that he wanted to put on his tombstone uh, simply the words, a slave of Jesus Christ by choice. And some of the folks were advising him, now yeah, that's kind of radical, maybe you shouldn't put that there. And he essentially said to them, then you've missed the point. Because a slave has no rights, a slave has no worries. A slave just has to deal with what the master wants. So, brothers and sisters, let's pray, and uh, we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning. Um, the worship team's going to come up, and um, we have, a, uh, we have a, a, a special song that we just want you to soak in and we want you to reflect in. 
We'll have prayer teams on the side if you need prayer. But you may be in the middle of a fire right now. You may be struggling with allegiance to an image right now. It might be your reputation. It might be your image. It might be anxiety and fear. If we read the news headlines, it's easy to be afraid. It doesn't take a lot of imagination. But the king is saying, stake your life on me. Stake your life on me. So whatever God's highlighting, uh, let's give our images and our furnaces to Jesus. Whatever pressure we're under, whatever, whatever unanswered prayers we're struggling with, whatever difficult situations in family relationships, in your marriages, in your parenting, whatever is is a battle right now, give that to Jesus. Give that to Jesus. Father, I thank you for these three amazing teenagers a long time ago who trusted in you, who staked their lives on you, who walked with you in fullness of life in the midst of unimaginable difficulty. And I pray, Lord, that as we now reflect on that, you would speak to each one of our hearts. That we would draw lessons from these three teenagers on how to live a godly life in an increasingly ungodly culture. And I especially lift up the students here and in the sound of my voice, lift up the students to, uh, who are starting school years at all levels and, and in our Sunday schools that each of them would be inspired by uh, Rock, Shack and Benny as they go into a new school year. Lord, would you give them courage? Would you give them strength? Would you give them protection? I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.